0: I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 10. You're going to need a copy of God's Word this morning uh, because it's not in your insert, and it's not in your insert because it is, again, a pretty large passage. I I thought, how could I chop this up? How could I abbreviate this? How could I outline this? Uh, There's just no easy way to do it. We're not necessarily going to read every word of the book of Judges, but I realized that that's kind of what we've been doing. And so we're going to do it again uh, today. It's been three weeks Since we've been in the book of Judges, if you're visiting with us this morning, we study books of the Bible and we go through chapter by chapter uh, asking, Lord, what do you want us to see about yourself and about what you call us to be as your people And so for all of us this morning, since it's been three weeks since we've been here, uh, but especially those of you who are visiting, I want to just take a moment uh, to review, and I'll try to be quick about how we got here. What is the story that has brought us to this point? Before I even read the passage, what's the story that has brought us to this point? Real quickly, I'm going to go way back, all right? Way back. After creating the world and pronouncing it good, But watching his people fall into rebellion, God, the creator of the universe, cleanses the world of wickedness, sets apart a people for himself through the man Abram, and Abraham's descendants begin to prosper in the nation of Egypt. Remember, that's the story of Joseph, how they got to Egypt. All of that is the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, okay? But that prosperity has resulted in envy, the envy of the Egyptians. And so the Egyptians enslave Israel. God hears their cries. God then leads his people out of the land of slavery. He gives them, the, their, he gives them his law. They struggle to follow it. They end up wandering in the desert for years and years and years. And that, uh, that is the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right, so we're five books through here. We've been like 30 seconds, right? Finally, God gives them a land under the leadership of Joshua. That is the book of Joshua. Now here we are on the seventh book of the Old Testament, the book of Judges. The people of Israel are in the land that God has given to them, but they are still struggling to keep their eyes on Yahweh. They're struggling to follow his word. They're struggling to trust him. But the Lord isn't giving up on his people. And that's what we've seen in the book of Judges. He is delivering them again and again out of their wandering and out of their stupidity. And he's using imperfect and even surprising means to do it, right? And so we've looked at these judges, not robe-wearing, gavel-beating judges, but deliverers. Rescuers. We've looked at Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, Tola, and Jair, all men and women raised up by God to deliver his people from the consequences of their sin. And things started off well in the book of Judges, but things have begun to go awry the deeper we have gotten into the book. Today, as we come to this passage, Judges chapter 10, things are as bad as they've ever been. Listen carefully as I read. This is another long passage. I'm going to just invite you to remain in your seats as you listen and focus on God's word with me. Judges chapter 10, starting at verse 6 where we left off three weeks ago. Listen as I read. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of God that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim. So that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you. Because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites, and oppressed you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods among them and served the Lord and became impatient over the misery of Israel. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the, Ge- the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives you, excuse me, gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he said, what do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land, but the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the land of the Amorites, who inhabited that country, And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess." Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aror and its villages and in all the cities that are on both banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I, therefore, have not sinned against you. And you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow made a vow to the Lord, and he said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, as far as abel karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Ammonites." So she said to her father, let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And so he said to her, go. And then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months she returned to her father who did with her according to the vow that he had made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. This is the word of the Lord. Whew. I need to take a deep breath after that. Perhaps you need to take a deep breath. I could hear it in your response to this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do we give thanks for this? Another sunny moment in the history of God's people. No. (laughs) Another hard story that brings up all sorts of questions. And what are we, the church, supposed to do with this? Well, that's a question I've been asking for a lot of hours this week. As we comb through this account, I'd like to suggest that God's word here invites us to embrace two things. Two things out of all of that history, out of all of that detail, out of all of that what? Two things, and the first is this. We must rightly understand and embrace the grace of God. We must rightly understand and embrace, we could even add, the character and grace of God. You see, I think that's the first thing that this account shows us. And I don't want you to get lost in the details. I know there were a lot of details. There's a lot, big history lesson that Jephthah gave to the Ammonites, and we'll get into that very briefly. But I think one of the things that this account shows us is how easily we as a people, as God's people, shown by Israel corporately and Jephthah individually, how easily we can lose sight of the character of God and lose sight, therefore, of the mercy and the grace of God. Hopefully I'll be able to explain what I mean by that. Let me ask a question to you kids. Kids, has mom mom or dad ever said to you, Miss, mister, you are on thin ice. Be careful. You're on thin ice. I certainly have been said that. I don't even think it's limited to my childhood years. I think I've been told that in my adult years as well by various individuals. Right, what mom and dad are communicating when they say you're on thin ice is you need to be careful You've had enough chances to obey. Mom and dad's patience is running out and you better, you better stop because something's coming if you continue in what you're doing. That's something of what's happening in this period of Israel's history. Verse 6, the people again did evil in the sight of God. We've heard that mantra over and over again. But in this passage, the writer gives us the kind of detail that we have never seen before in the book of Judges. One commentator said, this is faithlessness stacked high. Right? Seven foreign deities are mentioned. The Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Israel is just going hog wild with the gods of the land. And I want to remind you of a verse, Deuteronomy 7.1. When God was giving his law, when God was giving his promise Moses said to the people, when the Lord God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hivites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, more numerous and mightier than you, you must devote them to complete destruction. Seven nations were promised, now seven deities, are being worshipped. This is bad. This is worse than it's ever been in its completeness. And it causes Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to say something that's incredibly scary to hear. He says in verse 13, I will save you no more. That's thin ice. Go to your God's. Yahweh says in verse 14, let them save you. Haven't I saved you over and over and over again? And we say, wait a second, what about the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases? We, We began there in our worship service today. And we say, yes, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, but it must be believed. It must be embraced. Israel is not playing the part of the prodigal son here. They're playing the part of a son that's come home dozens and dozens of times and left dozens and dozens of times every time taking the father's inheritance and breaking his heart. Their hearts are not changing. They're using Yahweh. This isn't love. This isn't how they are called to embrace the grace and the mercy of God. Israel is despising his mercy to their own peril. And it's only when they turn from their idolatry, do with us as you will, in verse 16, and begin to follow the Lord We call this repentance. That only then do we see God's heart for them once again. You see, we live in a world that thinks it understands grace, that thinks it understands the character of the God who gives grace, but Israel reminds us that God's grace, seen in its fullness for us who sit here today in Jesus might must be rightly understood, must be rightly embraced. The gospel demands a response. It demands that self-reliance be discarded, that Jesus be our one heart's desire. And so there's a warning, don't presume upon God's grace, but cling to it through his Son, Jesus. We don't have time to read there, but you can write in your notes Hebrews 10, verse 26 and following. It's a passage that speaks to this very pointedly. Israel was misunderstanding God's grace, was presuming upon his mercy, and it ought to be a warning to us. But let's get into Jephthah's story. How is Jephthah? misunderstanding God's grace, and misunderstanding God's character. Well, Jephthah's problem is actually the opposite. Jephthah isn't presuming God's grace like Israel is. He's actually trying to earn God's grace. Chapter 11 begins with a short bio of our guy, a bio strikingly similar to Abimelech, if you remember from several weeks ago. Both sons of prostitutes, both at odds with their families, both surrounded by shady folks. And, and yet Jephthah is a mighty warrior, the text says, even though he is far from the action in the remote regions in the northeast but when the Ammonites come and they encamp in front of Israel and it's clear that the Ammonites are going to attack against Israel, the desperate elders of Gilead do a desperate thing. They, they call upon a guy that they've already kicked out, that they've already rejected, and they ask him to be their head, their leader. And Jephthah is a negotiator, right? That's the big a big history lesson in the middle of this account. But before we get there, Jephthah sees an opportunity to negotiate a little more. I'm not just going to lead you in battle, but if I, if I do this battle right, won't you guys just make me head? Just make me essentially your king. Well, they agree. Jephthah now back in good standing begins to open up talks with the Ammonites, this foreign nation that has poised itself against God's people. I'm not sure these talks really had any promise to them, but this is the way Jephthah operates. He's a talker. He's a negotiator, and that's important. The Ammonites, we learn in verse 15, they're out to settle a score with Israel. The problem is their history is way off. Whether they're lying, whether they're exaggerating, whether they're just mistaken, it's not clear. But Jephthah sets them straight. I know it's very confusing. Lots of names. Lots of what what just happened there. Here is the gist of Jephthah's argument against the Ammonites who are accusing the, Israel, the Israelites of stealing their land. He says this: "You say Israel took your land, but that's not true. The land that we took wasn't Ammonite land; it was the Amorites." And the Lord, our God, gave that land to us. It was clear that it was his hand that gave us that land. So therefore, king of the Amorites, you need to be content with whatever your God gives you. See that nice little subtle jab there by Jephthah? Now I want to stop there for just a moment. Oh, and then he ends the matter in verse 27. He says, Yahweh, the judge, will settle this matter, right? And I want to stop right there for just a moment and say, okay, what kind of, what kind of guy is Jephthah? He's a mighty warrior. He was ostracized. Now he's back in good standing with God's people. But is he, is he trusting the Lord? Does he have faith in the promises of Yahweh? Well, I think this gives us a glimpse That he does. He has some measure of faith. He acknowledges the deeds of Yahweh. He acknowledges that it was Yahweh who gave the Israelites the land of the Amorites. It It is Yahweh who is going to decide this matter. So there is some measure of faith. But as you see in the sermon title, his is a foolish faith. It's a foolish faith because he doesn't really understand the character or the grace of Yahweh. Well, the Ammonites won't have any of his talk. I don't know that they were even interested at the beginning, but he gave them a good speech, the negotiator that he is. And so war is inevitable, and it's at this point that things really get crazy. In the story, right? And it's this point where Jephthah becomes infamous in our minds and in the line of judges. You see, rather than believing God's promises and trusting in God's Spirit, which had been given to Jephthah, the negotiator wants to make a bargain with Yahweh, he wants to bargain with the Lord. A bargain that the Lord never accepts, that the Lord never asks for. But Jephthah is so zealous for a victory, he seemingly forgets everything that he should know about the law of the Lord and about the heart and character of Yahweh, and he shoots off his mouth and he makes a stupid vow. Jephthah's Jephthah's name means he will open. And open his mouth, he does. Verses 30 and 31. If you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And we're going to get into the details of what was spoken and the subsequent fallout. But for now, I just want you to see how Jephthah is relating to Yahweh. Specifically, how he is not understanding the character and grace of God. This vow is going to be not only disastrous, but it's completely unnecessary. It's essentially a a bribe, but it's unneeded. This is how you pleased pagan gods. In the ancient world. But Yahweh doesn't want this deal. This isn't how Yahweh operates. Yahweh simply wants belief. He wants obedience. And do you see what Jephthah's doing? It seems to me as we bring this story into our own experience, it obviously seems very far off, and it is far off from our experience. It's crazy, Never would such a thing happen in our day and age. And yet, brothers and sisters, I want to suggest that the core struggle of grace remains in our hearts. What I mean by that is, this is how every other religion in our world works. Whether it be Islam, whether it be Hinduism, whether it be Judaism, whether it be Mormonism, you've got to perform. To earn the favor of God, you need to show yourself worthy. You need to give something. We may not offer sacrifices, but we bargain based upon our performances. There's a question that uh, an evangelism um, class curriculum, there's a question that was introduced from that class years and years ago. It's called Evangelism Explosion. Ask the questions, if if you were to die today and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? If we go out to the streets of Seattle, if we go to Fred Meyer, or to target and ask people this question, they're gonna say, because I'm a good person. Because I've tried to do what's right. And I hope it's enough. But you know, brothers and sisters, that that's not the gospel. (laughs) That's not what we sing and rejoice in today. That's not the character of Yahweh. That, it's not grace. You can't bargain with God. Only one sacrifice matters to God, and it's the sacrifice of His Son, who willingly took our sin and our shame upon Himself. And that's how we get right standing with God, and that's how we have peace with Yahweh. And then built on that foundation, then we we offer ourselves, Hebrews says, as living sacrifices. But that's not to secure God's favor, that's because of God's favor. So it seems to me that Jephthah reminds us how hard it is at times for us to swallow grace. Grace. To just receive. The gospel says stop performing, stop sinning, and start resting. Understand and embrace the gospel of God. That's the first challenge to us this morning. Maybe we should stop there and not go back to the story and talk any more about it. But I know there's some burning questions but not presuming upon the grace of God as Israel did, not trying to embrace it falsely or earn it as Jephthah did, but accepting it through Jesus. That's a good segue to the second thing that we're called to embrace, and it's this. Embrace and fight for your peculiarity. Oh, that's a big word peculiarity peculiar it's not a word that we use very much these days it's a word that we use when we want to describe something as odd like that uncle whose whose pants don't go all the way to his ankles and wears the obvious toupee or something like that right that dude's peculiar but there's another meaning for the word and it's this that which belongs exclusively to one person we read earlier from the book of 1 Peter, from 1 Peter chapter 2. And in verse 9, where our translation says, a people for his own possession, the old King James Version, which I know some of you grew up with, says a peculiar people. A peculiar people. And so I'd like to take that meaning, both the meaning of oddity, strange, kind of strange, And the meaning of a people of God's own possession and bring them together as a challenge in this passage and in this horrible act that Jephthah the judge does. You see, I think Jephthah has lost his sense of peculiarity. Not only is he misunderstanding God's grace and bargaining with God, But getting back to the vow he made, and specifically the nature of the vow, we say, how could he do such a thing? How? And brothers and sisters, as much as I tried to wiggle out of it, the text is not ambiguous. Our English versions, you'll notice, they try to soften the blow in verse 31 by using the word whatever. But if you have an ESV, it has a little footnote. And what does that little footnote say? The little footnote says, or whoever. The Hebrew is actually more natural, whoever. Jephthah isn't expecting the family dog or the milking goat to come out of a door when he comes home. Jephthah is expecting a human to come out of his door, but he's not expecting his only daughter. He's expecting and probably hoping for one of his meaningless To him, servants. But how? (laughs) How? How could Jephthah do this? How could he vow this? Yahweh had clearly condemned human sacrifice before his people. He clearly abhors it and hated it. Whether he just didn't know God's word well enough or whether he just ignored it. Here's what I think he reminds us by this action, that sin deceives and culture seeps in. Sin deceives and culture seeps in. You see, as I said earlier, Jephthah lived in a culture where this practice, unfortunately, was was common. And Jephthah obviously didn't saturate himself with the word of God and with the law of God and the teaching of God. He didn't guard his own heart and life against the cultural air that he breathed. And so his actions made him indistinguishable from the world around him. Now I should note at this point that some commentators, they want to save Jephthah. Going into this passage, I wanted to save Jephthah. And I wanted to save him by saying that he didn't really follow through. That he really didn't give his daughter and kill her as a sacrifice. That he maybe just offered her as a, as, as a life of service to, the God, to, to God. And that's why she goes and, and weeps for her virginity. Because that would be a celibate life of service. But the text just doesn't let me or us, I think, wiggle out of the horror. He really did this, and the mourning over her virginity is the fact that she will never have children, which is a thing of honor, and she will not continue Jephthah's line. His line will end here, and she didn't need two months to mourn for that if she wasn't really going to die. She had her whole life to mourn that reality if all she was going to do was remain single. You see, I think Jephthah did this, falling in line with the culture around him, allowing the violence of his culture to become commonplace. He did this thing thinking he was pleasing Yahweh, and yet unlike Isaac on the mountain, Yahweh did not stay his hand. But the Lord gave him over to his foolishness, to his wickedness. And I don't understand it all. But what I do understand is the temptation to let the culture around us define and twist and pervert the way we think. Jeff has done it in a radical way. God forbid we get there. But it happens in incremental ways, as we are blinded by our sin. I think of previous generations of my family who owned people. Rather than treating them as image bearers, they treated them as property, as possessions. Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. a pillar of the Reformed faith, a pastor in our heritage. Christian people, as you know, use the word of God to justify their actions. We say, how could that be? The cultural air is sometimes thick and sin deceives. And so so the question, I think, for us, the challenge for us in a passage like this is, Where are our blind spots? I mean, just think about our own day, our culture's view of convenience and comfort, our preoccupation with money and stuff, our culture's views on human freedom, on human sexuality, on the worth of babies still unborn. There's a practice unimaginable, and it happens thousands of times every day. The violence, the perversion of our culture is becoming more and more normal. And it's even slipping into the theology and the practice of the church. And so, brothers and sisters, this is a reminder that we are called to be peculiar, that we are called to be different. This whole gathering is odd. There's a, there's a replica of an ancient Roman execution tool hanging on the wall behind me. That's odd. We 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 sang of the precious blood of Jesus. That's that's odd. We're about to celebrate that execution by drinking out of little tiny cups. That's odd, brothers and sisters. We just spent 30 minutes opening an ancient book, an ancient text, studying ancient history as if it was alive and meant something to us today. That's odd. And it's all beautifully odd. It's foolishness to the world, but to us who believe, who have been captured and enraptured by the risen Jesus who is alive, it is life. It is life eternal. And so embrace and fight for your peculiarity. Cling to the teaching of God's word. Guard yourself against blind spots. Ask where you have lost ground that the Holy Spirit would show you where you have begun to think like the world around you. And finally, rest in the character of a God who doesn't want you to bargain with him, who simply wants you to believe And rest in his grace and the only sacrifice we need Jesus the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world amen let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your word this is a hard passage a hard period in the life of your people but Father we pray that you would take it and make it for us a challenge an encouragement, a reminder, a prod. Whatever, it, whatever we need, whatever each individual in this room needs, Holy Spirit, would you make it that for our good and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.